Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org. Amen. So I just want to introduce myself for those who don't know me. Um, You know, I feel like it's always sort of a duty. It would be irresponsible if I didn't tell you a little bit of my testimony, um, even if it's just like 30 seconds. Kind of got a lot to speak on today. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at me and you think I'm a preacher, if you think I'm a minister, if you think I'm anything except for a drug addict that was delivered by the power of God, you're mistaken. Um, I was, you know, five years ago, I was addicted to fentanyl. I was daily dosing on methadone. Um, I was a broken, lost person. Um, and the grace of God uh, proved to be strong enough to pull me out. And I feel like it's my duty to tell you, if you are in this room and you're struggling, I want to talk to you after. Um, if you know someone who's struggling, I want to talk to you after um, because I believe God's called me to be a resource for that. And so I just want to say that, you know, he can, he can deliver the addict, um, and I'm living, living proof. Um, but my name's Brandon. I am 35 years old. I don't know why I just told my age. It's like a sacred rule that you don't break. Um, but my wife is here. Uh, I have a beautiful wife, Christina McKenzie, um, and my kids, Sawyer and Bella. And we work at a ministry called Take the City. We've had the privilege to work the last four years at this amazing ministry over on 2nd Avenue. It's got a coffee shop, house of prayer, and we, um, you know, are very missional. We just believe uh, the Lord has called us into the Great Commission. And so Take the City is all about that. It's been an honor to be a part of this spiritual family, Fountain City. Um, We're just really grateful, and we love this city. We were called from Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and we just feel such an honor to be here. I don't know if you guys know, but Columbus, Georgia is so unique in that there's so much unity um, across denominations, across racial backgrounds, Um, and I'm just honored to be a part of this amazing city and the church in this city. Um, It's amazing, and so, Grant, thank you for uh, just inviting me to speak, man. I know it's a big deal to give somebody a microphone. I just want to say thank you um, and giving me space to, yeah, to teach and and preach, so... Um, so who is James? So we, we're kind of going back uh, a few months. I think it's been a while since we've talked about James, um, but we've covered James 1 through, th- one through 2. Um, and James, if you don't know, James, his, his name is actually Jacob. Um, and so James was a Jewish man uh, who was actually the half-brother of Jesus, his little brother most likely, um, you know, it was unlikely that Joseph and Mary had a kid before Jesus, right? So he was his younger brother, so he grew up, like, picture that. that first, that's amazing, like, that there is a book written by Jesus' natural brother. Um, it's amazing. So it, the, the Hebrew interpretation of his name is actually Jacob. He was the younger half-brother of Jesus, and certain passages make it clear in the Gospels that he and his other brothers did not ascribe to the belief that Jesus was the Messiah, Um, They're even cited as sort of mocking him and provoking him in John 7. Um, However, James actually became a disciple after witnessing the resurrected Jesus. Um, And so Jesus came, uh, he resurrected, we all know that, but he spent 40 days teaching about the kingdom of God. Um, And James witnessed the resurrected Jesus during this time. And later in the Jerusalem church, you know, Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Um, There's a group of people there in the upper room and they are filled with the Holy Spirit and the first Christian church emerges in Jerusalem. Um, and so in that time, uh, James was sort of, we see him over a course of 20 years, if you study James, 
about 20 years, you know, he was a part of that church. And by the end of it, Paul actually called James, uh, mentioned him with Peter and John as one of the pillars of the church. So James was a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, the first Christian church, um, which is incredible, going from a doubtful, like, half-brother of Jesus, um, seeing resurrected Jesus and then becoming a leader of the Jerusalem church. Like, that to me is pretty significant evidence of the, that Jesus resurrected from the grave. Um, so that's kind of a background of James. And in the book of James, he's actually writing, the, one of the very first verses says, to uh, the Jewish believers, basically, scattered abroad. Um, and so in, in the course that he was a leader in the Jerusalem church, there was a famine, there was persecution from the religious institution in Jerusalem, and it forced, pressure had forced Jews, Jewish believers specifically, in the Messiah Jesus, to be exiled, in a sense, into these nations um, around Jerusalem. And James, here he is writing to those believers. So not even just the Jews in, Jer in the Jerusalem church. So keep that in mind. I, I just think it's important to understand the intention of the author when he's writing. This is a very specific letter to specific people. Um, and, you know, if you read his writing in, in the book of James, you can actually get the sense like you're reading the book of Proverbs. Um, if you compare James with Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, so Ecclesiastes, um, and then even Jesus, you can actually hear the influence of Jesus, the way Jesus taught in parables. You know, the parabolic language is pretty amazing. Um, now, my personal comments on the letter of James, I, uh, you know, I don't find James that interesting in my devotional life. <laughs> um, if I'm being honest, you know, as a creative thinker, as an artistic person, uh, it's always challenging for me to read James, um, and I'm not totally sure why that is, uh, but I think it's probably um, because he's, James is like the friend we all need who gets in your face and tells you like it is. I mean, how many people like that, right? So... You know, I can read the epistles of Paul, and I can find these profound, those profound mind-boggling revelations on the supremacy of Christ. You know, I can go over and read the letters of John and delve into the love of God and even glimpse into Revelation to read the earth-shattering grand finale to the biblical meta-narrative. Um, I can read Luke's account of the early church in the book of Acts and be wowed by the demonstration of God's power displayed through common, everyday believers, uh, turning the Greek and Roman world upside down. Um, but James, uh, James is more interested in holding me accountable. It's not nearly as fun. Um, but as I've read this book repetitively and prayerfully just since being asked uh, to teach on this, I've been amazed, uh, honestly, and captivated by this book. Um, but I've sifted through the, sort of the parabolic language that James uses through the multiple themes he presents and have concluded the message of James is that those who have been truly um, saved through the gospel, uh, must manifest that salvation in practical ways in their lives. Um, a transformed life of others should uh, be the result of experiencing God's love. So the overarching sort of theme that I walked away with, the point basically that James is saying all throughout is, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Um, you know, words, words without faith, works without faith. He's sort of saying, live an integrated life that's dedicated to Jesus. Don't be double-minded. Um, you know, that we can't divorce the reality of the Great Commission with the Great Commandment. We can't say that we love God and then turn around and curse our neighbor. We can't say that we obey God and we don't have any works to show. Um, so James is, he's basically saying, listen, 
Um, don't be double-minded. Give, you know, don't be uh, split apart. Don't be divided. Be undivided. Don't be a hypocrite. Um, and we're going to read today's passage. Um, if you want to open your Bibles or uh, open your screens um, or just listen along. So James says here in James 3, verse 1 through 12, says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. All the perfect people stand up. uh, Able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, uh, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Strong words. Um, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Um, James says a lot here. Um... But I'm breaking it down in three key points. Uh, if you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, our, the first point is our words hold far more weight than we dare imagine. Our words hold far more weight than we dare imagine. Um, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should desire to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And shout out to Grant, who asked me to teach on a passage that opens up with that statement. <laughs> Um, because it's, but it's true. Um, it's true. It, why though? Why is that true? Why should many of us not desire to be teachers? Because words are powerful. Um, because the tongue is small, but it's powerful. Um, and teaching God's word, which is sacred, you, you shouldn't desire that. You know, I, I believe that there are many who desire uh, influence on social media today. And um, we have a multitude of voices. We have Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. Um, teachers and preachers, and there's so many opinions and so many voices. And what James is basically saying is, yeah, don't desire that. Um, Instead, you know, understand that the the tongue is small, but it's powerful. It is a world of evil set on fire by hell. Um, And I believe he's trying to provoke a sense of fear, a sense of a fear of the Lord on what we carry when we speak. Um, And because the tongue is small but powerful. In, in, in the 1940s, how many of you guys have seen Oppenheimer, the new film Oppenheimer? I still haven't seen it. I'm like waiting till I have enough time to break it down because I know I'm going to nerd out on it um, because I love good films, um, especially Nolan. Like, he's amazing. But I want to say that, you know, in the 1940s, we actually learned that by splitting a u- uranium atom, one could destroy a city um, and kill most of its people. Words are like this. Um, that it's super small, and, and we might think that it's, it's not a big deal, 
but our words can inflame uh, with the fires of hell uh, a city. Um, and, and nearly every modern war, actually, since like the early 1700s, I actually researched this, can be traced back to words. Um, many of those words fired intentionally from platforms, many of them unintentional, where somebody said the wrong thing at the wrong time and a pair of ears that maybe weren't supposed to hear it heard it, but the result was warfare. Um, and these, these crazy big wars, world wars, you know, that have happened, trace back to the power of words. Words are powerful. Um, at the same time, there have been great moves of God. There have been revivals that have swept through our nation, through um, nations of the earth, where men and women of God who have, have been anointed to preach using their words have literally resulted in these amazing revivals and outpourings. Um, Abraham Lincoln, you know, one of the greatest orators in our time, uh, his, the result of his words led a nation out, out of slavery, out of the, the African-American community, out of slavery. Martin Luther King, um, not long ago, with the gift of words, that man was anointed um, with the power of his words, and it flowed from his heart, and it caused us to, uh, to leave the Jim Crow laws, right? That's incredible. That's amazing. So these amazing um, demonstrations of the power of words, not all negative, but positive as well. Our words are powerful. Um, on a more personal level, like haven't we all experienced the power of words? You, many of you were at work this week. I'm sure you could think maybe something happened this week where somebody said something that was a little off kilter. Maybe you were printing copies of something and somebody said something. They didn't mean anything by it, but it affected you, right? Um, many of our childhoods, you know, I, I know mine, I can look back and I was never physically abused. I'm fortunate enough to say that, but words formed me. You know, what my mother and father spoke over me and what they didn't sometimes, what they neglected to speak, formed me. And we were all shaped by words. Um, words are, are powerful. And the tongue is small, but it's powerful. And the unfortunate thing, according to James, is this is my second point, is that no one can tame their own tongue. But I want to say this, Jesus did tame his tongue. And I always, when I read the epistles or when I read something in the New Testament, I always try to find that manifested through Jesus um, because we see everything. We, we know the Father by looking at Jesus. So I'm like, I, I started to meditate on this like throughout the, the last couple of weeks that I've been reading James. I'm like, Father, where, how, do, how can I see this in Jesus? Um, how, did Jesus tame his own tongue? And if he did, what does that look like? And I started to think, you know, we talk so much about in the Gospels, the miracles, right? The demonstration of God's power, the demons being delivered when he would walk into a city. They would just automatically shriek and leave, right? And it's powerful. And we love those stories. Um, we talk about the virgin birth and the resurrection and, and just it's amazing. But how many of us have stopped and pondered the mastery that Jesus had over his speech? Um, and there are two stories. And I, I won't read these stories. I just want to talk about them because we're kind of short for time, but Jesus mastered his tongue, and there are two demonstrations where Jesus absolutely blows my mind, and I want you to put yourself in Jesus's shoes. How many of you have ever been under pressure, um, and like you feel the pressure, and somebody's putting pressure on you, and you don't even know how to respond? You have to walk away, or you blow up. It's like fight or flight. Well, the, the religious powers of the day hated Jesus um, because he was turning their world upside down. 
he was challenging the status quo. And the Pharisees uh, used to, they, they, one of their main tactics would be they would try to catch Jesus in his words. They would try to twist them. They would try to get him to say something. Um, there being this political spirit, you know, trying to catch Jesus to say something um, and, and use that to turn the crowds against him to leverage their power back. Um, and, and two instances happen where Jesus will blow you. I think it will blow your mind, too. But they, they get together with the Roman officials, the Pharisees do, and they're like, how can we get Jesus? Let's, let's use Caesar. Let's use the currency of our day, the coins that we use, and let's try to use that to leverage uh, the crowds against Jesus. They're trying to get Jesus to, to basically denounce Caesar using the currency. Um, and they, they hand the coin to Jesus, and they, or actually they don't. They say, who should we pay taxes to? Should we pay to Caesar or should we pay to you? Um, and Jesus goes, hand me a coin. First of all, you got these crowds. It's like me right now. I check my heart rate. It's like 120. All right, I'm so nervous. So Jesus... In this setting, he has crowds all around him. He has massive crowds, probably like 50 times bigger than this. I don't know. Um, but there's these people that are just listening to him speak. And it's like if there was a Pharisee in the room and they stood up right now and say, hey, Brandon. You know, and they try to throw this, mat, like, this question at me. Honestly, I'd probably walk. Is there a door close? I don't know. I'd probably just go through that door and try to leave. Um, my introverted self, right? <laughs> But Jesus, you know, he's just got the presence of mind. He has mastered his tongue in this moment of great pressure. And he goes, yeah, hand me a coin. Like, how, how smooth is that, Jesus? You are super fly, man. <laughs> hand me a coin. And they hand him a coin. Um, and Jesus goes, you know, whose who's, who's, who's inscription is on the back? And then they say Caesar's. And he's like, well, yeah, give that to Caesar's. But give to God's what is God's. Like, do we ever think about that? Like, we just kind of read it like it was always a, a saying. Jesus thought it, like, that came out of his heart on the fly. That's incredible. And that's one of the most amazing things about Jesus to me. Um, the second one is in John 8, 3 through 11. I want to say that scripture. If you want to read that story, it's Mark 12, 13 through 17. Um, another one is John 8, 3 through 11. They... Actually, they, they, this is pretty low of the Pharisees. This is probably like the lowest they stooped. But they went and intentionally found a woman who was in the act of adultery. Um, they pulled this woman out. They, again, Jesus has these amazing, these huge crowds. Um, and so the crowds are here, you know, and they're listening to Jesus. And they, they take this woman and they, they throw her before Jesus. And they said, you know, they're trying to use, this time, they're not using the political powers against them. They're using their own law. Um, and what they interpreted as the law of Moses. Um, and Jesus, you know, is they're trying to get Jesus to condemn this woman. We caught her in the act. Like, while you're up here speaking, we found this lady in the act of committing adultery. Um, and they drag her out and they throw her down and they, they just embarrass her. And, like, ima imagine that, you know, if you're Jesus and you have this before you, like, just thrown on you in the moment while you're teaching and while you're sharing with great crowds. Um, and Jesus just stoops down, and he just starts <laughs> doodling in the sand, you know? Like, imagine that. And they're just waiting on him to respond. They're like, hurry up, you know? They, they, and Jesus is just doodling. He's just leisurely doodling. I don't even know what that's about, but I, I love it. It's so punk rock, right? <laughs> Jesus is like punk rock to me. Um, <laughs> 
you know, he, he's not going to be pressured to say something. He's not going to do it on their terms. He's going to take his time to listen to the Father. Only see what the Father does. Only, only do what the Father does. And I only say what the Father says. And so he, he says, you know, he completely turns the table on them. And he says, you who have no sin, you cast the first stone. And then the, the stones just drop one by one by one. And all she can hear when she's down on the ground is the stones dropping one by one. And she looks up and all she sees left is Jesus. And Jesus, now I imagine the crowds are still there and he openly says, where, where are your accusers? I, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's incredible. Jesus mastered his tongue. He was, um, he absolutely tamed his tongue. Like if there's anybody we can look at in the scriptures and say that, it's Jesus. And these moments are amazing to me, but no other instance displays Jesus' absolute mastery of his speech more profoundly than when he chooses to withhold it. In the face of death, going to the cross, Jesus says, I think, a total of like three sentences on his way to the cross. Each one poignant, each one not flippant, but very intentional. You know, he addresses Pilate. He addresses those that were slapping him and beating him in these one-liners. Can you imagine? You're, you're arrested. You're completely innocent. You're the son of God. <laughs> he was the son of God. He knew he was innocent. He knew he was the most innocent person on the earth. And yet, Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed and afflicted. This was thousands of years, 7,000 years before Jesus came to the earth. And it says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. And this is incredible. I just want to draw your attention to marvel at the words of Jesus. Take time, even maybe this week, and just marvel at what a brilliant uh, master of speech Jesus was. Um, Jesus' word brought forth creation in Genesis 1, and it is his word in the end of the story that consummates the end of the age by the sword that comes out of his mouth. And Jesus is the, the word of God. In John 1, he is described as the Logos word of God. He is the word of God. All things hold together in Jesus. Words are powerful. Words are powerful. We're made in the image of God. Your words are powerful. But this begs a very important question, and we might ask James, yeah, James, we hear you, words are powerful, and yeah, Jesus, obviously you're perfect, but how do we tame our tongues? And I want to tell a story about, um, Christina's heard this thousands of times, so I think it's hilarious, but when I was like seven years old, I have an identical twin brother, and we were like seven years old, and remember home videos? They used to be a thing where you would put the tape in the VCR, and the family would gather around and watch them. Well, I was like seven years old, and these home videos were like of when I was like four. So it wasn't even that long ago. Um, but I remember hearing myself on video, and I sounded like the biggest redneck. <laughs> Me and my brother both sounded so southern. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we're going to fix that. We're... <laughs> I, my whole family, you know, they're, they're very country, and so that was having an impact on the way I talked. Well, I, me and my brother, like, to, we're not going to talk like that. we got to fix this. <laughs> and we, you know, we intentionally, like, trained our tongues. We tamed our tongues. And I just want to say that, that I don't think that's the kind of taming the tongue that Jesus is talking about, or James is talking about. Um, you know, we cannot tame our own words, James says we can't tame our own words, but according to James, 
Uh, but, but listen to what Jesus says about our words. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. We all know that passage. Um, but our words are connected to our hearts. They are intricately connected to our hearts. Um, we must start with the heart, and, and there's only one word there's only one who can change the heart, and it's Jesus. So how do we let him do it? And I believe the answer is we give him an undivided heart. And James, again, James is talking about don't be a hypocrite. Don't be divided. I believe it's okay. just flow with, from an undivided heart. Um, as imperfect as it is, as broken as it is, as messed up and wounded as it is, throw it before the altar. Of, of his throne. Um, get before God with an undivided heart, and from there your words will begin to flow um, and, and align with his. This is not about behavior modification. Um, and I just want to say this boldly. It's, it's not about name it and claim it mantras. It's not about toxic positivity even. Uh, if you don't believe me, go and read the things that David had to say in the Psalms. Yet David was called a man after God's own heart. Through David came the Messiah, the lineage of Jesus. This, the offspring of David was Jesus, and all of us are brought into the kingdom through, trace it back to David. God gave David a covenant. Yet, read the Psalms. This guy is jacked up. Like, he is not, he does not have it all together. He's talking about, um, I can't even say some of the things he talks about. You know, and John Calvin actually described the book of Psalms as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. So you literally see a full gauntlet of the heart when you read Psalms. Um, and I just think that's amazing. But I'm just going to read like some of the words of David um, in Psalm 6, 6. I just literally like cherry pick this. I just open them and they're, they're everywhere. Sayings like this are everywhere. Like I think every Psalm <laughs> has a, just a statement like this. But it says, you know, I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. You know, this guy is wrestling through deep depression. And he's journaling it. And we get to read it. Um, another one, Psalms 13:1 says, "How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me?" And like David, Jesus himself didn't appear very tamed in his words at times. You know, read, read um, Mark 23:27. It's you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Kind of seems like he's flying off the handle, right? <laughs> We read that, and, and it sounds like he's kind of outbursting in anger a little bit. You know, woe to you, you, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, Matthew 23, 27. And um, Matthew 27, 46 says, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What? The lowest point of Jesus' life is right before he passes and he commits his spirit to the Father. But he ends in victory, right? Because the last thing he says is what? It is, it is finished. The victory cry tore through gut-wrenching statements like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's an interconnectedness to, from our words to our hearts. And the Father says, that's okay. Actually, I wouldn't have it any other way. I think the Father cares very deeply about authenticity. 
And I think, if I could just say this, I think that as charismatics in our circles, we've inherited lots of, I'm just going to say it, wrong and bad teaching. I believe that, and I boldly stand on it, because I see something else in the scriptures. And I'm talking about name it, claim it, um, be positive and everything will be okay. Don't say stuff. Don't, pe- don't speak that over yourself, brother. You got a cold. Don't speak that. No, sometimes I have a cold. I don't know. And this, this is just Brandon. So let me just separate. Uh, let me just separate. That's, that, this is just the way in my walk that I kind of see things, all right? And sometimes I know that I could be very negative. I'm a melancholy personality, and I know that I could say stuff that I shouldn't say. But I do think that there's a healthy balance, and I think what James is trying to get at here is we need to be undivided in our hearts. And I think it, the words flow from our hearts. Um, he says, James 3, 10 through 12, you know, it says, this, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water f- flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So he's talking about being undivided. Ultimately, it is those who are undivided towards God in their hearts, those who intimately know God through authentically talking with him, who have tamed their tongues the best, those who have cultivated an unshakable awareness of his presence by familiarizing themselves with him and by being real, by building a history with God that is drenched with tears and drenched with reality, you know? So, and have you ever been in a scenario where you were talking to someone a certain way, uh, maybe you were gossiping or being crude, um, or maybe there were some inside jokes that you knew other people around you didn't get, or whatever, and then someone important walks in and suddenly the conversation shifts out of reverence for that person? I was in the army, so I know what that's like to have a general walk in and everybody shuts up real fast. You know, I... Um, and then, you know, I, I've had moments like this numerous times when my brothers and I were kids and would be home talking all sorts of nonsense. And then my dad walks in from work and suddenly we change the way we talk, right? Well, living with a tame tongue, I think is kind of like that. The closer we get to God through our imperfect but undivided hearts, I think the more we become aware of our words because our father is in the room. And I think the Bible has a lot to say about our words. They are indeed powerful, but I think, oh, man, if we could just get to this thing, I think we're going to be okay. And I think that if we can get to taming this, this thing, our words are connected to our hearts. Um, in this book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, Pete Scazzaro says, Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality, and listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They're the cry that gives the heart a voice, um, and I just want to close here with some, just some practical things that have helped me along. I, I believe it's important to tie you know, scriptures and everything with experience. I think God cares about our experience, trying to obey the scriptures. Um, and, and something that I've learned is journaling is, is really helpful for me. So if y'all want to write this down, um, but in the Psalms, the reason why David's negative speech in the scriptures uh, were justified is because he poured them out at the feet of Jesus from a devoted heart. Uh, so journaling, like writing down what's in your heart and having a place to dump those things in your heart um, is super helpful. 
I know for me, when I write it down, it like really helps me process. And I think that God actually reads those journal entries. When I present them before him in faith, I believe Jesus actually reads those entries. And there's a powerful connection that forms if we can journal um, and build, build a, a habit of healthy journaling before the Lord. Um, and journaling in a posture of prayer is our way of writing out our own psalms, so to speak, uh, of having an outlet for these negative emotions and thoughts and even doubts towards God. And the second thing I would say is cultivate um, silence, like silence. We, we rush past silence so much. And I think that our culture needs men and women of God that know how to be still and silent. Um, I think of Elijah. You know, Elijah, when he heard the still, small voice of God, he, you know, he, he was expecting him to be in the fire. He was expecting him to be in the flood. The Lord, you know, came by on what? He came in a still, small whisper. Um, and Elijah cloaked his face. You know, his response was as if he had seen the throne room of God, but he found it in a whisper. And his response was, was proportionate. Like one whisper from God deserves absolute reverence, but we can't hear it if we're always moving on, we're always scrolling, Right? It's a big deal, guys. Like, I don't think there's anybody in this modern times that does not struggle with phone addiction. Um, the Lord is just teaching me since, uh, since the fast that we started this year of, like, putting down my phone, like, giving it a bedtime, you know, and saying, you, you don't have control over me. Like, I give my allegiance to the voice of God, and before bed, I just kind of lay there, or I'll be at the table in my kitchen, but I'll, I'll just listen. I won't come with anything. I'll just use my ears. And you would be amazed, five minutes in of silence, two minutes, however long it takes for you, what the Father has to say, like how much he has to say and how much he longs to say it. But he needs our ears. He needs us to, to listen. You know what I mean? And I think it's important to do that. And so I encourage you guys, build and cultivate uh, rhythms of silence. And that could be lunchtime at your office. It could be at night like me or it could be the morning. It could be in your car ride and maybe turn off the radio and kind of listen, tune in. Um, and also just in general, just pray regularly, set a time and place for regular prayer. And when you do, uh, use your words, learn to vocalize your petitions and your intercessions. Jesus loves to hear your voice and this will form your heart to become more like him. So yeah, times of silence, but also understand he wants to hear your physical voice. Um, and I think it's powerful when, when we do that. And the other thing I would say is confession. And I love this spiritual family because I really believe there's, in the culture, I think that, Grant, you've done an amazing job cultivating just confession and being real with one another and building honest relationships with each other. Like, even though we're all weak together and we're trying to obey the Great Commission and we're trying to live for Jesus, well, I think confession is super important on that journey. Um, and so I, I think confessing to one another, and it doesn't have to be, like, to everybody. I have basically uh, one man of God that I really respect he lives outside of this city, um, but I call him like every week and I just confess. I'm like, here's what I'm struggling with, you know, and I confess my sins. And to have a, a somebody that you trust and you could talk to about that and then they could like just speak the voice of the Father over you, really. Like, you're forgiven. Hey, you know, it's okay. Like, you're forgiven. Let's pray together. Um, it's so powerful. I can't stress that enough. So I kind of want to end with like a macro uh, picture, like a big picture. What are we talking about here? What does it look like for us to do James 3, 1 through 12, to tame our tongues? I know that I kind of went on a rabbit trail. Some of you were like, how did you get that out of James 3? 
Um, but this has come from, you know, my relationship with God and sort of him showing me these passages that are linked together. And it's probably not a good exposition. Uh, so maybe listen to John Piper after this or something about James 3, 1 through 12. So, but we are people of his presence. We stood up and we declared this at the beginning of the year. We are people of his presence. If you were here, you stood up and you said that. And I believe that we are. And worship this morning, you know, his presence. He loves being here, guys. There's something happening in our worship, and when we come here, where you can sense God really likes this place. He likes us. like He likes to be with us, and I believe a marking identity in this house is that we are people of his presence. We prioritize his presence. Not only do we invite his presence, we love his presence, and we need it, and I think that there's a priority on this place where because of that tenacity for his presence, he comes, and he meets with us, and um, we are people of his presence. People are, we're a part of a culture, though. Um, the Lord taught the disciples to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, every culture has a language that marks that culture. Um, just like my southern accent when I was a kid. <laughs> that came from a culture. I grew up, you know, in the south. Well, in heaven, what is their, their language is kindness. It's confession. You know, it's um, encouragement. It's authenticity. But there's a certain way that people in the kingdom should talk when they're gathered around his presence, that reflect Jesus. And people are like, I hear their words. Like, maybe they're not even talking to us, but we're in the room and we hear conversations that are happening. And we're like, this, this is, I just feel God in this place. I feel like God is here through the conversations. Um, and, and before um, I, I started, you know, i making some final notes this morning on the sermon. And the Lord brought me to Isaiah 6. Um, Isaiah 6, Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God. It's one of the few instances where a physical human being was taken up into the throne room. Um, and Isaiah is there. He's a prophet of Israel, and he sees the king. It says in the year King Uzziah died, the earthly king, he sees God. He sees the king of heaven. Um, and what he sees is, and I never noticed this until this morning. Actually, it was last night. I was in my bed. And I was thinking about this passage, and Isaiah, the first thing that he sees is these angels, the seraphim and cherubim that are flying around the throne. Um, and in all the other you know, passages where we see someone looking at the throne room of God, the angels are singing to God. The angels are singing and chanting and giving praises to God. They're saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's going straight from their hearts to, G to God. Um, but in, in this instance, Isaiah, actually, it says the angels are calling out to one another. And they're saying, he's holy, he's holy, he's so holy. And the other angel is like, yeah, I know, he's so holy. Let's keep flying around the throne. He's holy, he's holy. And they're just like, the substance of their hearts, they don't have anything else to talk about. Um, and I know for me, I'm like, you know, I talk about Jaguars. I'm a Jaguars fan, which sucks because they suck. So a lot of what I talk about is the Jaguars, but I want to be part, I want to be to where my conversations, that I don't have to be in a room singing or, or whatever, that's great, but I want to be so filled with God that what comes out of my conversations to my other brothers and sisters, he's holy, he's holy, he's worthy, he's worthy, isn't he worthy? Yeah, what he did last week, man, you should have seen it in Walmart, I prayed for this guy, and he got delivered, he's holy, he's holy, yeah, and you should have seen the restoration that happened in my family when I went home on on pass and I asked my grandfather for forgiveness for I did this thing he wept in my arms it's powerful he's worthy he's holy you know it's like when we are a people of his presence we are filled with God and what comes out of this thing right here is 
we have tamed our tongues. <laughs> we have tamed our tongues somehow by focusing not on our outward what we say. Faith without works is dead, but faith without words is also. And so I think that we, we have a great opportunity here in this house to really go after it, to really build our lives on the presence of God, like Isaiah and Isaiah 6. Um, and and that's, that's kind of all I have. So I'll just the hard landing here. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon at Fountain City Church. We hope that you are blessed by this message today. If you'd like to learn more, you can check out our website at fountaincity.org.